Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Minogue from Open Muse Expansion Team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. If you've been listening in, you know all season long we've been talking about product-led growth. Today is going to be our final episode of season three, and I'm joined by not one, but two special guests. I recently attended SaaStock in Dublin, where I met up with two founders of highly successful PLG companies, Zendesk and Segment. Today, we'll hear their perspectives of what it takes to not only start a PLG business, but grow it to massive scale. I'm joined by Martin Primdell, co-founder and former CTO of Zendesk. Martin, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So Zendesk has had an amazing and successful journey from being founded over 10 years ago in Copenhagen. You guys successfully moved the business to the U.S. and ultimately took it public in 2014. But I'd love for you to take us back to those early days. What was the problem that you were looking to solve when you guys first founded Zendesk? Yeah. So Mikkel, Alexander, and I have worked together in different constellations for more than 20 years. And as part of that, in the early 2000s, I worked with Mikkel selling enterprise help desk systems. And we recognized that these systems were built with no sense of grace or the people using them. Uh, they looked terrible, a terrible user experience. We also recognized that the sales process was broken. It was like enterprise sales. You move in, you make a deal with some executive, and they would just jam these products into the throats of the customer support departments. And that was mostly because the notion was customer service is a cost center. So we realized we can do a lot better in terms of products, and we realized that customer service can actually be a benefit to a company. So we set out to build this in you know, 2005. We teamed up with Alexander, and then we just spent our spare time for the next year and a half once we went live in 2007. And then we quit our jobs and tried to push it from there. <laughs> you quit your job and started another one. <laughs> exactly. So when Zenith was first founded, you guys really built up your awareness and your traction based on word of mouth. So can you talk a little bit about how you went about that and how Zendesk acquisition strategy has evolved over those early years since being founded? Yeah. Alexander is our chief product officer, and he was really good at bringing in this consumer-friendly look and feel of the product, which appealed to people. They would actually sign up and use the product. So we had that as a foundation, you know, easy self-service. And then we went out and advertised on something called The Deck, which is like a designer-focused ad network. And we had this great brand already back then because we'd been collaborating with Toka, who's now our chief creative officer, on building up the brand. And so it just appealed to a bunch of people and they tried out the products. They would share their experiences about it. We did many sort of very deliberate integrations, API-level integrations to other companies to get mentioned on their blogs, which was how people communicated about their product evolution back then. Uh, so just to spread the message around Zen desk. So lots of word of mouth come from integration, pinpointing advertisements to a good segments. And then we had our first hire, who was a formidable man, Michael Hansen, who worked for us for free. He was an old friend and he was stuck in Hong Kong with his wife was working. He couldn't work. So he was going to work for us for free. And he was just fantastic at building up buzz and doing these campaigns with t-shirts and little music devices that would play soothing tunes to help like support the brand in terms of being a little quirky, very human. Wonderful. And if I'm not mistaken, Zendesk had no sales at its inception. So how did this impact your product and how you were ultimately landing your customers? Yeah. So we had no sales because Michael, Alex and I we didn't really agree with the traditional enterprise sales model and we hadn't really understood how sales could also look like it does for us today. So we had no sales. We said, this product is going to be so simple that you'll just sign up for it and use it. And that was really the driver. Just keep it simple. Reduce all friction that you can. And we saw people sign up for Zendesk and five minutes later they had 
create their first support ticket by email and they're like, okay, instant gratification, this works. So the simplicity of the product really drove lots of interest because people were looking for easier alternatives and they would find us eventually, AdWords, whatever, and just kick the tires and say, hey, this works. Later, you know, in 2010, when our product had matured also in terms of features and functionality, we then had our first sales hire and a fantastic guy, Matt, and he did triple quota the first month, you know, and we're like, okay, there's something here, you know, and we started to understand that bigger companies, they actually want an account executive, someone to reach out to them, make sure things are okay, and someone to tell them about new features and help them migrate to, to bigger parts of the product if that's necessary. We just didn't understand that it was okay to discard the old sales process and just look at it in a new, fresh fashion, which we started doing. And then eventually start building out sales leadership in San Francisco and Great. globally. I mean, and it sounds like you guys were thinking about trying to show value to your leads and your prospects right away Definitely. for them to understand, you know, what Zendesk can offer and get them really hooked and become ultimate customers. Can you talk a little bit more how you tried to design the product so it was so simple and they could get that value right away? Yeah. Contrary to what I think is best practice today, we didn't spend time with doing like blind UX and these kinds of things. We didn't do experience with users, but we had, a, I would say with some modesty, a good common sense. We had built internet products for you know a decade before starting Zendesk, so we had good experience. We all understood what this was about. And we come from Denmark where design aesthetics is a big part of how we think about things. We just applied that on the technology side as well. So let's keep it simple, elegant, easy to use. And then we tried to build a product where it was very simple at start, but you start digging into what you can configure. You know, it's this layered onion model. You peel off the layers and more and more features will show up and you can build like very nuanced complexity in terms of what processes you support and how you do it. So we made it sort of open-ended, easy to use, deceptively simple on top, but you can dive in and start using more and more features and configure those features so they fit your business. That's a great point. So thinking about as layers or different stages that a customer should move through as opposed to giving them the kitchen sink yeah. and them not knowing what to start with. Right. You just get thrown here 10,000 options. And, oh my goodness, I'm going to turn around and walk out this door, right? Certainly. So you hit on this a little bit when you were talking about as Zendesk hired sales folks, but I think we see many product-led businesses or businesses who are taking a bottoms-up approach to SaaS start selling into SMB and mid-market customers to start, but then they struggle with when is the right time to move into the enterprise? Like when is the right time to move up market and how do you even go about that? Yeah. So how did you guys know at Zendesk when was the right time to hire sales folks? When was the right time to start moving a little bit more into the enterprise space? Yeah. So I think our journey was easier than most in that sense. We had the good fortune to be pretty alone in the SaaS market for enough years. We got a bottom-up approach and we solidified the base. And then we started to seeing increasing demand for account executives, customer success and these things as our customers became larger. When you grow up and mature, you have a wider offering, a broad offering, you have stability, you have a track record, you have reference customers, you build out all that. And then you can attract even larger customers and they come and meet you with demands. And that's when you can see, okay, there's an opportunity here for a play in sales, for example. And slowly, you, but steadily, you would just move up market. Mm -hmm. So my last question for you, we're here at SaaStock, the biggest you know, SaaS gathering in Europe. What are you most looking forward to over these next couple of days? Of course, meeting founders from all parts of the journey. I will say, so Zendisk is doing this taking stock pledge in a collaboration with SaaStock down at our booth, which is about diversity and inclusion in technology. It's something we care a lot about. 
and we would like to see it change even more. So that's a booth I look forward to visiting and to stay down there and meet people and talk about what can we do to do better. Certainly. Well, that is something that OpenView is really passionate about as well. We're doing a ton to help our portfolio companies. You should stop by. Certainly. We'd love to help out. Fantastic. Well, Morton, thank you for chatting with me. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So I'm joined by Peter Reinhardt, co-founder and CEO of Segment. Peter, thank you for joining us on Build. Thank you for having me. So I want to first say congratulations. Segment has had an amazing year. So I saw the company is on the Forbes 2018 cloud list for the third year in a row. Indeed. And I think the last I read, you guys have 19,000 customers and growing. That's right. So, I mean, pretty amazing track record. But before we get into how you've grown to this point... Can you first tell all our listeners what Segment does? Yeah, so Segment provides the pipes for data to flow inside of a company and specifically customer data. So, you know, about 19,000 companies, as you mentioned, use our pipes to process all of their customer data. And they collect it from their website and their mobile app and their payment systems and their help desk and so forth. And then we fan it out to all the tools that they use it in downstream, which could be an analytics tool or a help desk, a CRM, ad conversion pixels, data warehouses, et cetera. So we're the underlying pipes and infrastructure there. Great. And I know Segment has a interesting story of how it was founded. So can you share with our listeners how you ultimately you know, founded Segment and how you found product market fit? Yeah, so I was studying aerospace engineering uh, at MIT, and my two co-founders were studying computer science. And we decided that we wanted to build a classroom lecture tool. So the idea was to give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. And the professor were to get this graph over time of how confused their students were. And this turns out to be a really bad idea. As soon as the students open their laptops, they go straight to Facebook. It's very embarrassing beta tests. We had to apologize to a lot of professors. And after shutting down that idea, we tried to build an analytics tool that also failed. It's a very crowded market, as I think many people have noticed. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of different analytics tools. And over the course of this, we built a small open source library called Analytics.js. And it was really just a tool for ourselves to make it easier to implement the many, many analytics and marketing tools out there. And what we discovered is that actually many other people have this problem. And the way we discovered that is kind of funny. So my co-founder Ian had been looking at how the open source library had been performing and it had you know, a few stars on GitHub and a few pull requests and stuff like that. And our other ideas had failed. And so we were searching around for a new idea and Ian said, well, you know, I think there's a big business behind this open source library, Analytics.js. And I was like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> it's 500 lines of code. It's already open source. Like, I do not understand how you conceivably build a business around that. All good ideas start as bad ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we fought about it all day long, all four founders. And I went home and I was like racking my brains trying to figure out how to kill this idea. I finally figured it out, came in the next day, and I was like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build this beautiful landing page. It's like really going to pitch the value of Analytics.js, and we'll put it up on Hacker News, and we'll see what happens. And I was thinking, like, done. <laughs> like, we can move on now. So we built the landing page, put it up on Hacker News, went straight to the top, got a few hundred upvotes, got a few thousand stars on GitHub. People were reaching out to us on LinkedIn, demanding access to the beta version of this product. Wow. And so it was very obvious that I was wrong. Pretty humbling experience. And uh, from there, we ended up building out the hosted version, which is the product that's been doing well over the last five years. Amazing, certainly. So all season long on Build, we've been talking about product-led growth. And a key element of this type of growth is really putting your product into your users' hands as quickly as possible and letting them experience the true value of your product, right? And I think a key way that many folks try and do this is through the way they think about their packaging and their pricing. So, right, 
Many folks have a free trial or even go as far as having a freemium solution as well. So Segment currently has both of these, both a free trial and a freemium version. So can you walk us through sort of your rationale here and how you landed on these types of packages? Yeah, so we first launched the product as a free product. There was no pricing at all to begin with, which was maybe inadvisable. But, you know, we just launched it. It was free for people to use and companies started deploying it internally. So we, you know, in the first month or so after launch got to about... 70 companies sending their data through Segment, and over the year after that, got up to about 1,000 companies sending data through Segment. And it was only around that point, a year and a bit in, that we really started charging for it. And so it was very natural for us to shift into, okay, well, you know, we're going to keep a bunch of people on the free plan who are like barely using stuff, and instead we're going to add a higher usage tier where people can pay for it. And over time, we've sort of added higher and higher usage tiers, and the price at the high end has sort of kept going up as we realized, A, what value we were providing, and B, what broader usage really looked like. So, you know, not just a developer using it on their blog or whatever, but, you know, a company like IBM deploying it globally across hundreds of different business units. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you need a different pricing tier for those extreme ends and everything in between. So for us, it was a pretty natural evolution from being completely free and open source to having a real sort of enterprise SaaS business. Right. But you could also ask, like, why haven't we gotten rid of the free tier, I guess? Certainly. And that, I think, is strategic in several regards. One, what we found is that many of our largest customers actually come from people, the buyers who previously were at smaller companies who used self-service or possibly even the free plan. And so for us, it's a way of both giving access to a large group of companies that actually need something like Segment. Right. And then quite honestly, it ends up being great lead gen for us in the long term that it builds a bit more of a community who's familiar with the product and wants to use it at at larger scale Mm -hmm. as they move between companies. Certainly. So how did you know where to draw the line in terms of when you should start charging in terms of the usage? Like, was it clear what the pricing metric should be and what that level of usage should be? Or, you know, how did you land there? Because I think that's something as people are either launching freemium or start as a free business, it's difficult to decide where do you draw the line between free and paid? Yeah, I think it's an extremely difficult question. And what we found is that originally we, as engineers, really were cost-focused. So we would think about pricing in terms of how much does it cost us to provide the service? Like, we should be charging more than that. But that mentality really, one, isn't customer-focused, and two, doesn't end up capturing a lot of the value that you've actually created. The customer-focused piece is actually really important because you end up with a pricing model that's skew from how your customer thinks about what the value should be and what they're willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And that often ends up actually being a negative in a lot of ways, both in the sales process and in terms of how a customer sort of empathizes with your product and your sales process and what you're providing to them. And so we had a sales advisor who really helped us understand more the concept of value-based selling. And I think early in a startup's lifetime, what he taught us and what I think is generally true for a SaaS startup is that you really need to test the value. You don't know what the value is. You don't even know how companies are doing the ROI calculation to decide what the value is. And the way that you really forcibly extract that through customer feedback is you quote them a very, very, very high price or what you think is a very, very, very high price and you find out whether it's too high or not. Right. And if they think it's too high, then they will tell you what their ROI is. And so, you know, for us, he was like, well, you need to ask customers for $120,000 a year. And this was at a point in time where we were charging $120 a year. So he wanted us to increase our price 1,000x. And I thought that was crazy. And then five months later, we were charging $120,000 a year. And customers were happy about it. And they were happy about it because we started to get a better understanding of what the value drivers were for them. That it was actually that we were saving massive amounts of engineering time. And the ROI was around that engineering value. And so once we started to understand that, 
it actually changed how we thought about what we built, which was, okay, we're not just providing the marketing team with better ramp up, we're actually providing saved engineering time. Mm -hmm. And what are the other things that these engineers are building? And it turned out that they were also building data pipelines into data warehouses. And so that became a natural addition to the product that saved our customers a lot of time and made the product much more valuable and much more sticky. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to understand that one, you should sell on a value-based metric as opposed to a cost-based metric, and that the only way you really understand what that is is by asking for an amount of money that you think is egregiously large, and you will likely find is not once you understand what the actual ROI calculation is. Right, but you certainly need to experiment with all different types of price levels to get a true understanding of where the optimal point will be. That's right, yeah. So I want to switch gears a bit. So you guys sell into engineering. So selling into technical buyers can be quite different than selling into non-technical buyers. They may be a little bit more hesitant to change, or they may not have large budgets. So I want to hear from your perspective how you think selling into a technical buyer is different and how you guys have you know, taken those learnings and put it into your own sales process and lead funnel. Yeah, so the first thing going back to your earlier question is what's important about freemium. And I think when you're selling to a technical buyer, a technical buyer really likes to actually experiment and like understand the product by using it first. They don't love marketing pages. Docs are good but they really want to actually get their hands on it. And and so freemium is actually a key part of that strategy where someone can come in and try it out on a small thing and then understand whether it's going to work well for them on a larger scale. So that's one thing that I think is a key part of the strategy of selling to a technical buyer. A second is early on, we actually weren't sure that we would sell to a technical buyer. Interesting. We thought maybe we should sell to a marketing buyer because primarily the data that we're moving around is at least 50% for marketing use cases. Now it's also for business intelligence in a data warehouse and so forth. So we actually experimented with both. And what what we found is that the way that those two departments think about their budget is very different. So if you're a marketer, you're primarily thinking about your budget in terms of acquisition. How many customers are you going to be able to acquire? And everything that you spend, you want to be able to line up against that outcome. Certainly. The issue for us was that a marketer or a marketing team or a CMO had a hard time lining up segments ROI directly with an outcome there. It was more a foundational piece that might help them do other things that then would lead to acquiring customers. And so the sort of like two-step gap to what it was that a marketer was going to do to actually generate their results from right. this buy was pretty difficult. And what we found is that then the CFO and the CMO had a hard time agreeing on whether it was going to be worthwhile or not because the CFO is putting a lot of pressure to like really acquire more customers effectively. And so instead what we found is that the ROI was much more direct on the engineering side, which is either they were going to have to build this with engineers or they were going to have to buy something like Segment. And so that direct ROI then became different. And the engineering team's calculus is different. They're not geared toward acquisition. What they're geared toward is building things effectively and efficiently. And so that's primarily, there are two cost drivers, primarily our data center, often AWS or or Google Cloud, and headcount. And so if you save on either one of those things, then it's an amazing outcome, or you accelerate either one of those things. And so for us, it really comes down to the ROI around headcount. And on a relative basis, we sort of disappear below the largest line item or two line items, which are headcount and data center costs. And so from a ROI perspective, then it's a very easy case for a VP of engineering or a CTO or a CIO mm-hmm. to make the case that they're going to buy that. So I think really understanding where the budget is coming from and how your buyer thinks about where that budget is coming from and their standard way of running ROI calculations against the results they're trying to drive is really important. The third thing that I think we made a mistake with early on is, and it wasn't a big mistake, but I think it was a very big misconception is that we thought because we were selling to the technical buyer that we would need to have a technical person sell to them. Seems very rational. And I think our logic was that they would have a lot of technical questions that would need to be answered by a person with a technical background. 
We've actually found that from a sales perspective, it's actually not required in any real way. And obviously you need a sales engineering team who can answer those questions and that is critical for us. And our support function is very technical. So we call our support team success engineering and frankly, they're reviewing code and logs yep. to do answer pretty much all the support tickets. So we have an extremely technical support team. But from a sales perspective, actually sales is a very human thing, even when you're selling to a CIO or a CTO. And the best sales reps at Segwin are non-technical. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like you truly have a mix of different types of right um, employees. You've got salespeople who can really sort of talk the talk, but then you're supplementing that with a really technical support team. So it's almost the blend of the two. Yeah, and really a salesperson's job is not to explain the product. The salesperson's job really is to extract what the use case is and what the value proposition is out of the buyer and help them navigate their own internal buying process. Often, you know, you have one person who's a champion, but you have a lot of other people that need to be convinced internally. And running that process is fundamentally a human and sales thing that has nothing to do with how the product works technically. And I think we did not understand that early on. Interesting. So we're here at SaaSJack. I'd love to hear so far what's been the highlight of the event for you. The surprising thing to me has been sort of how tight I think the European community is and how good of a job SaaSJack has done in bringing together that community. There's a lot of people who I've met in years past and who I've seen around the ecosystem and they're pretty much all here. So that I think has been the highlight is just seeing that community come together. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So my last question for you is what is one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs who are listening in that are really trying to build this sort of product-led growth business similar to how Segment has done? Yeah, I think the most important thing actually for product-led, I would say there's a precursor to being product-led, which is to be customer-led. Mm. And I think most product managers and most people when they think about products do not actually go deep enough into customer problems. So I think one of the things that we've really focused on at Segment now, we've launched about five different products over the years and had a pretty good hit rate, yeah. maybe 80 to 100% on products really finding product market fit. And I think that product market fit is the precursor to product led and the precursor to product market fit is asking your customers about 10x more questions than you feel comfortable with. And I think typically a product manager or a founder will go to a company and say like, hey, do you have a, an example from us, do you have a problem with uh, data cleanliness? Like, does your data feel like a mess? And the customer will be like, oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah, our, our data definitely feels like a mess. We're like, oh, well, like, why is that? Like, oh, well, because like our events are differently named and they're tracked at different times and so forth. We're like, okay, cool. Check the box, move on to the next customer. They have a problem that we can solve. And instead, what happens is when we go the next like three layers deep, and we say like, oh, well, what do you do about that today? Like, oh, well, we have a data QA team that reviews every single release of the product. Oh, well, like, how big is that team? Oh, well, it's like a dozen people. I'm like, well, where are they based? Oh, well, they're based in LA. And they're full-time on that. And you said the team is a dozen people? Like, yes, they're full-time on that. We pay them LA salaries. So this is a million-dollar a year, maybe $2 million a year problem for you. Yes. Okay, well, holy shit, now you actually understand a bunch more about their process. That's probably about one-tenth of the conversation that needs to happen with that customer. So going 10x deep into really understanding the customer problems, I think, is the precursor to eventually being product-led because you actually understand and can craft a marketing narrative that actually attracts people to the business. Right. And then you can better design your product to not only acquire those customers, but truly better serve them over time as well. Really resonate with them. Yeah, which is the key to product-led growth, I think. Certainly. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Build today. I loved having you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this season of Build. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to be notified about our upcoming season. To give you a sneak peek, Devin McDonald will be back as our host, discussing the journey to the boardroom and what it takes to get there.
In the meantime, you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture or subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Newsletter.